Uh, so good to worship with all of you this morning and invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter as we're going to continue our series in 1 Peter. Last week we did verse 1. Actually, we did half of verse 1. Actually, we just did the first verse of the first word of verse one. So today we're going to do verses one and two. And I'm, I'm excited to to share with you this this passage. Um, it's a, kind of an unfortunate thing in today's world. It's uh, in our correspondence with one another. Now it's all uh, I mean, how many of you write handwritten letters to people anymore? Okay, so more than more than I thought. So it's on occasion, but most of our correspondence is just a quick little email. And then, uh, and how many of you, when you're composing an email, you get right to the point, just kind of right. And as a matter of fact, maybe a lot of us, when we read, we kind of skip the the perfunctory stuff at the beginning, and we want our eyes want to kind of catch to what the let's get to the point of the the email or get to the point of the letter, you know. that's a very unfortunate thing when you approach Scripture, especially the letters in Scripture, because some of the material at the beginning of the letter is not just perfunctory, let's just uh, you know get the pleasantries out of the way. A lot of the material at the very beginning of the letter is very profound. And not only is it profound writing from the author's perspective, the human author, in this case, First Peter, it's helpful to remember that all scripture is breathed out by God. So even the introductory comments here have things for us to teach us. And so we're going to look at this introductory greeting to this letter to help us get a sense of where Peter is going in this letter. So if you are turned to First Peter, I invite you to follow along as I read verses one and two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. And Father God, we turn to you now and ask for your guidance here in this time. We pray that every word here can be mined for its significance for us. Um, God, I pray for your, um, for your assistance, um, that what I've prepared is, is what you would have me to, to say this morning and to share. Um, that the thoughts of, of my heart from this passage uh, would, be, would be your thoughts. And so, God, we pray in this meditation, uh, for our meditation of this passage this morning, we pray that you would speak to us and that you give us uh, willing hearts to receive what you'd have for us and to see the way that you have given it to your people down through the ages for our encouragement. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. So as with any letter, it's helpful to look at the to and the from. The to and the from. Now, we usually in our modern day letter writing, we begin with the to. To so-and-so, and then we put who it's from at the bottom. Not so in New Testament letters. We're very familiar with this. We've gone through several New Testament letters. They begin with the author. It's usually like the first, the first name is the author. And then a little description about the author. And then they go to. So we're going to look at from. And the author of First Peter is Peter. Peter. Very good. Yeah. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Right? It's Grant. Nobody? No? Not Grant? Well, the author of First Peter is Peter, despite what some might say. And we looked at his bio last Sunday, a recap of his life, a fisherman by trade, uh, lived in Galilee, named was 
Simon was the Greek form of his Hebrew name, Simeon. So he went by Simeon, he went by Simon, uh, but he was given the name Peter by Jesus Christ himself. He was a disciple of Christ. He was one of the 12 apostles and he was the leader of the 12 apostles. He was usually a spokesman for the group. He was the one that he uh, that Jesus interacted with most frequently. Um, he was the one who walked on the water. He was the one who was performing some of the miracles. And Peter's role as leader extends past the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself all the way to the beginning of the early church. He's the one who stands at the day of Pentecost and preaches uh, the message. And uh, what a mighty person that Peter was, or what a mighty person that God had made Peter to be. And yet it's interesting how he identifies himself here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle. Now I want to talk a little bit here uh, about this role of apostle and apostleship and the office of apostle and the apostolic um, nature of the New Testament authority. This is a very key concept in the Bible, in the New Testament, apostolic authority. What makes someone an apostle? Now, the word apostle means in a general sense, a sent one, somebody who's sent as a, a messenger, you know, uh, uh, an emissary that's sent on a task. And they usually would carry with them the authority of the one sent on behalf of someone. It's in many ways, it's used to use of somebody who's sent on this task. But when it comes to the apostles in the New Testament, this is a very specific and technical meaning for the office, the office of apostle. I was talking with Janet this week as we were on a walk and we were kind of talking through the distinction here. Um, and sometimes I, I take this for granted. And I think some people don't understand what's the difference between a disciple and an apostle. Well, when Jesus began his ministry, he had disciples, which are learners or followers of Jesus Christ. And that number wasn't just 12. It uh, started with a few and then grew and grew and grew till, to hundreds. Jesus had hundreds of disciples at some point, maybe even had thousands of, of disciples. But within that number, Jesus had selected 12 to be his apostles. So he had commissioned them and given them special authority to go and do ministry. So you guys catch the, the difference between a disciple and an apostle. So there were 12 apostles, Peter being one of them. And remember, there's four lists of those in the New Testament. Peter's first on every one of them. And so Peter is telling himself, I am an apostle. I am an authorized authority of the New Testament. Is what he's essentially saying here. And there were qualifications for apostle uh, for to be an apostle. One of this, this I'm talking about in the technical sense, in this technical sense. And those qualifications are you had to have seen the resurrected Lord and been called and commissioned by him. Those are the that's the criteria for being an apostle. New Testament speaking, speaking from New Testament language and New Testament qualifications, you had to have been called by name by Jesus Christ himself. And you had to have been an eyewitness, a physical eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You remember what happened with one of the apostles, Judas, who hanged himself after he had betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And in the beginning of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, they didn't have a full complement. They only had 11. And so Peter had come to the whole group and goes, uh, looking at the Old Testament scripture, and he sees some things, and he goes, there should be one who should take his place. And they see that what happened with Judas is actually uh, foretold of in the Old Testament. And so he says, we need to, to point an, another, we need to find another apostle. We need to have a full complement of, of the twelve. And so they do. They have two that come forward and they cast the lots and they have the one. And uh, it's Matthias that becomes one of the, the 12. So, but in that passage, he gives the qualifications for the apostle. 
We need to have somebody who's been with us the whole time, gone in and out with us with Jesus and who has been an eyewitness of the resurrection. Okay. Now, what about the apostle Paul? I've been kind of wondering, okay, well, the apostle Paul wasn't one of those original 12. He ended up authoring much of the New Testament. He addresses himself or introduces himself as an apostle. How does he qualify? Well, you remember in Acts chapter 9, in the midst while the apostle Paul is breathing out murderous threats, going and killing Christians, and he's on his way to Damascus, and the Lord Jesus appears to him, right? And blinds him with his presence. And Paul says, who, who are you, Lord? And he goes, I'm Jesus Christ, whom you are persecuting. And right then and there, Jesus commissions Paul. Later he says, I had called him to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. He calls him and commissions him as an apostle. So much so that in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 9, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's talking about his apostolic authority, his apostolic office, the authority that he has to plant churches, to write scripture. He has that office. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the resurrected Lord? So that is the qualifications for an apostle. That's really important today in this day and age because there's a movement that's going around that is saying, you know what? The church made a huge mistake two millennia ago. In the first century, the church made a huge mistake in thinking that these 12 apostles had a unique sort of authority that the Lord spoke to them and gave revelations to them along with the Old Testament prophets. That the church lost that when those last ones died. And we need to restart, re, uh, reform the church in such a way, have a reformation where this apostolic office is re restored. Okay? There's a movement that's doing that today, and they will call some apostles who will claim they have a rev revelation from the Lord. But biblically speaking, the office of apostle is uniquely qualified to this New Testament era. If somebody says they're an apostle and says they have received a word from the Lord, red flags. You have some serious warnings. Every New Testament letter can be traced to one of these apostles. That's, that was the thinking. Now, what, what qualified? There were lots of red letters that were shared from church to church. What qualified these as being recognized authoritative letters? Well, in the early church, they said, can we trace this in some way to an apostle? Like Luke, he wasn't one of the original disciples. He became a convert during Paul's ministry. Yet Luke was a co-worker with Paul. So Paul perhaps, you know, was kind of the source material for a lot of what Luke wrote. And so the early church said, ah, so Luke's gospel is generally accepted that this is a scripture and it's attached to an apostle. Mark's gospel is uh, what Luke is to Paul. Mark's gospel is to Peter because Mark was uh, an associate of the ministry of Peter in the early church. So you got so you understand the the office of apostle. I think it's helpful to recapture that a little bit. So Peter is doing two things here in his introduction. When he says, Peter, an apostle, he's doing, uh, he is putting forward his authority to, to speak to the churches. But he's doing it in a very humble way. He could add a whole lot of other things. Peter, the one that the Lord specifically forgave. When he betrayed him three times and denied him three times. The one that, that one that Jesus restored after his resurrection. He could have added a whole bunch of other titles. But he just says, an apostle. Just humbly giving his authority. As a matter of fact, later in this letter, he addresses the elders of the church. And he says to the elders, and I'm writing to you as a co-elder. He doesn't say I'm the bishop of the church at the top and everybody else is the hierarchy down. 
He's a, as a co-elder with you, I just appeal to you. So there's a little of the humility here. He doesn't claim I'm the spokesman of the, the original 12 disciples and apostles. I was the one who walked on water. I was the one who rebuked Jesus. I'm just an apostle. An apostle of whom? Jesus Christ. I know this sounds basic, but for Peter, it's all about Jesus. Oh, that we would be like Peter, all about that man. Is Jesus that man to you? Peter, everything that he did after his ministry with uh, walking with Jesus, all the way to seeing his crucifixion and his resurrection, Jesus was everything to Peter. Oh, that Jesus would be everything to all of you. So this is who this letter is from. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now I want to get to the audience uh, here to whom he is writing. And I want to do this. Uh, there's, there's three things that we need to understand about who he's writing to. The first one is just the geographical regions. Okay, notice what it says in verse 1. Uh, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, these are all regions or provinces. They, they could be regions uh, or they could be Ro official Roman provinces. Some of them overlap. Some are different. I could show you a whole map, uh, but then we'd be here way past lunch. But he's just saying these are regions where the church was, and this is all in modern-day Turkey. So we'll just kind of, can you guys get a visual picture of the map of the world? Or do I need to get the dry erase board? Got it? Okay. So these are churches in, in modern-day Turkey. Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As a matter of fact, the region of Galatia, that sounds familiar. Paul also planted churches there and visited churches there. And he wrote a letter back to those churches. That's the church of Galatians. So some of this might be very familiar. Some of those regions are also people for, from whom... Uh, we're traveling to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost when Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost. So these are geographical regions, and this is the church in those regions. So one, the geographical regions of the church. Two is the worldly condition of, of these, these churches. The worldly condition. Okay? What it says, exiles of the dispersion. Exiles of the dispersion. Without getting into too many details here, this exiles of the dispersion is kind of the description of the worldly condition of these Christian saints. They're strangers and exiles, even though they're walking and living and um traveling and doing business in their respective regions like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they nevertheless, though residents of those regions and residents of the uh, citizens of the Roman Empire, who was in control of those regions at the time, they are dispersed and exiles. They're strangers and aliens. As a matter of fact, strangers and exiles and aliens is a term that Peter will use frequently in this letter. So these are churches. He's writing to Christians, not just Jewish Christians. These are, would be a mix of Jews and Gentiles. Uh, this, is, this is a term for the church. So there's a geographical regions. There are the worldly condition, but more importantly, is their eternal status. To those who are Elect exiles, it says. To those who are elect exiles, and as he continues in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God. So the next few moments I want to talk about two of the most hated concepts in the Bible. Anybody envious of me at this moment? <laughs> right. Two of the most hated comment, uh, concepts in the Bible, election and foreknowledge. He uses this term elect for these believers. And it's actually a term 
Uh, it's a term meaning uh, to, to select, to choose, to call, to elect, like we just had an election. Uh, and uh, most of the country, allegedly, um, selected a president. Um, and so they, we, it's a choosing. It's, you have a couple of options and you select one. In the biblical sense, this is God's choice to save people. God's choice to save people. It's a term that Jesus himself is using for believers. Another term for believers. In Mark's gospel, chapter 13, he's talking about the end time uh, things, about the return of Christ and the tribulations that will come. And I'll just read a couple of verses from chapter 13. Where Jesus says, and if the Lord had not cut short those days... No human being would be saved, but, Jesus says, for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. He continues on, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Now, the idea here is the elect is this elect of God and that they couldn't be, you know, it's, it's if it was possible, these false teachers and false Christs and false prophets would try to lead them away. But he uses the term for this group that's protected from that as the elect. A few verses later, he says, and then he will send out his angels it's at the end and will gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is three times Jesus uses this terminology to describe those who are believers in him. Peter was there in the upper room when Jesus uh, gives his upper room discourse in John chapter 15. When Jesus says these words, no longer do I call you servants for servants do not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. And then he says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should ab abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus tells, tells them, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Now stop there for a moment and think about this. This is Peter. This is the terminology that Peter is using here. Imagine Peter saying, wait a second. I was there on the seashore and you said, come follow me. And I left my nets and I followed you. That was my choice. Right? Peter doesn't, he doesn't see it that way. Although their call has gone out by Jesus to Peter and Peter responds and he goes, he realizes According to what Jesus' words there to his disciples were, he's like, fundamentally, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I chose you. Earlier in John's gospel, he says, uh, talking about Judas and the issue of his betrayal, and he goes, I'm not, I'm not speaking of all of you, for I know whom I have chosen, he says. Paul says something similar, Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And the classic passage, and I invite you to turn with me to that one in Ephesians chapter 1. The first couple of verses of Ephesians 1. This beautiful opening song of praise in the original Greek, all 14 verses there, verse 3 through 14, I should say, is all one verse or one sentence in the Greek. But I'll read just the, uh, the first couple of verses where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious 
grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, no one really doubts. Nobody really doubts the idea of election. There's just disagreement on the basis for it. Okay. Uh, most, most believers, most professed believers, Christians don't doubt the idea of election here. They just disagree on the basis. And there's three ways of kind of categorizing the basis here. Um, the first one is, well, it's a merited election. He chose you because you were good enough. He chose you because you've earned it. You had a moral life. You were, you were a good person. You generally follow the law well enough that, you know, the scales tip in your favor. And so therefore he chooses you to be saved. This is pretty much an ancient heresy that should be disregarded and probably don't have much more to comment about it. That's the first one is a merited election. The second one is a conditional election. And now that, what does this mean? Well, this means that he chose you because he knew ahead of time that you would choose him. Okay, this is, the mer- this is not the merited, this is the conditional, right? So there's a condition on his election he will elect you if you've elected him. Get the idea here? That's, that's the conditional election. He chose you because he, and this is where the foreknowledge comes in. He looks into the future and he could see that, he, that you would choose him. And therefore you chose him, so therefore he elects you. And then the third one is unconditional election. He chooses just because he does, because it's his choice. Now, the main objection that's usually given to that one and kind of in favor of the second one, the conditional one, is... Well, he chooses us based on a foreseen faith. And again, this is based off the idea of foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father here. So it's helpful to see these two terms together. And I'm just going to handle this as briefly as I can. So it's based off the word foreknowledge. It's the reason God has chosen you is because he knew ahead of time how you would respond. And now there's usually a reason that's put forward here. For why this is the case, and that is, well, because because we do choose, right? We do make the choice for for Christ. It that's our responsibility. In some way, it's a little bit of human pride. I have to have some responsibility for my relationship with God, and so they. They usually put forth this idea, well, God's election needs to be seen in light of the fact that God sees into the future and sees that I would have chosen him, and therefore I'm chosen. So I don't think that that really solves the problem that that I think that this solves. Still wants to maintain that God chose you because he knew in advance that you would choose him. However, when you look at how the word foreknowledge appears in the New Testament and election appears in the New Testament, that scenario doesn't seem to quite fit. Because going back to to Ephesians chapter one, verse four, what does it say? And he even as he chose us when in him, when you at the passage before. The foundation of the world. When did God's election take place? Before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. How can God know in advance choices you would make without him even having made the universe yet? Let alone you. Because see how that doesn't quite solve the problem. Because it's a way to kind of get God off the hook and leave people responsible for their lack of choosing him by saying, well, that's that's their choice. And it is to a, to an extent.
Because God, the election and foreknowledge happens before the foundation of the world. Let me, let me give a couple of other scripture here to help us with this. Jesus Christ himself is spoken of as being foreknown by God the Father. Now, does that mean uh, Jesus Christ acts independently of God and that he just looks into the future and sees what Jesus Christ does? Or is Jesus's for or God the Father's foreknowledge of Jesus Christ based on his eternal plan with Jesus Christ? Do you see what I mean? I mean let's look at a couple of passages. Acts chapter 2. I invite you to turn there. Acts chapter 2. And this, again, this is the Apostle Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost as people are wondering about this site that people are able to speak in tongues. They're able to speak in other languages and other people can understand them. And people are wondering about what's going on. Some of them think, well, these guys are just drunk. What is going on? And Peter stands up in the midst of this whole thing and he quotes from Scripture. And then he says these words in verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Okay, see how the foreknowledge is connected to the work of Jesus Christ. Did God just look into the future and see that Jesus would deliver himself up? Or is foreknowledge another term to describe this is a part of God's plan? Jesus here is described as being foreknown of God. Whom you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you catch that. The crucifixion of Jesus was not just known in advance. God isn't just peering down through the the corridors of time. And he sees that Jesus would be crucified on the cross. And then therefore foreordains it no the his the source of all of those things comes in the heart and mind and plan and wisdom of god not only that look at what peter says a little bit later back in acts in first peter chapter one again describing jesus and the work of jesus on the cross verse 18 He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot, a blemish or spot. He was foreknown. Is Jesus independent of God, the father somewhere down through history doing this? And he's just seeing it in advance. And therefore, he's accepting that work. Or is this before God created any of the world, before he said, let there be light, he had a plan for Jesus Christ. And in that sense, he's foreknown. I think it's that it's the latter. He was foreknown when before the foundation of the world. But was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. This is kind of a tricky and difficult idea or concept here. To think, wait a second, we're only saved because God chose to save us. Some, understandably, are a little uncomfortable with that idea. And I would think mostly it it's, has as its basis human, our human pride. We want to, I want to be responsible for my salvation in some way. Now, I'm not saying this is justification for people not believing Uh, Faith 
trusting in Christ. That's all a part of this whole process. That's the means God uses to do so. And it is a mystery how these things kind of merge together. But we should avoid the idea of thinking that my faith contributed to my salvation. Apart from God's choice out of his perfect holiness and wisdom. That he selects on those on whom his son Jesus Christ came to die. Let me read to you a section here from a passage that I thought was very helpful. God's election of his people is his seal that he loves him. So this is the, the difficult part. Like we, we often, this is a very difficult doctrine to, to think about. And it causes some mental reservations or things that we can't quite uh, understand. But let me give you the main reason why this doctrine is here in the scripture. And that is to assure you of God's love for you. That your condition with God is based on his work and his choice and his electing love. That your status in your relationship with God does not waver with how you feel about it. Does not waver with the strength of your faith or the weakness of your faith. But your status of your covenant relationship with God is grounded in God. That's the idea. God's election of his people is his seal that he loves them. Because he elects them, he will cherish them. He cherishes them in Jesus Christ, who, in so, who is so in love with them... That he calls them his bride. Moreover, having gone to the cross to die for his bride, Jesus takes on all of her liabilities upon himself. God's foreknowledge means that he is also passionately and intimately in love with his people that he offers his own son on Calvary for them. This is what election should do. This is what the doctrine of election should do for us. It should break us of all of our pride and cause us to just give praise and thanks and glory. You, you mean you chose to love me no matter what. Let me continue. Thus, God the Father elects his people on the basis of his eternal, overwhelming Sovereign affection for them. Why did he love them? Because he chose to do so. Why did he love you? Because he chose to do so. And whatever he needed to do to cause you to come back into relationship with him, he does and provides for you. Sovereign, unchangeable love is the ultimate joy and reality of the universe. It is the rock of God's redeeming grace. We cannot get beyond that sovereign love to something else. Love is the ultimate reality of God himself. God is love. God's foreknowledge means that God has always been in love with his people. He didn't fall in love with you. He's always been in love with you. He's loved his people from all eternity. And just as Bible believing Christian cannot conceive of God not existing, not being eternal and not being triune. So he cannot conceive of God as not being in love with his people. And not exercising that love through his Gracious plan of salvation. This is what election should do. It should tie your relationship to God in the very nature and character of God himself. And as eternal as God is, that's how eternal his loving relationship is with his people. Right? It doesn't happen subsequently in some point in time. That's what election should do. 
that should cause us to go, praise be to, to God. Should cause praise. This doctrine of election absolutely destroys human pride. It destroys it. It removes every single bit of that would be within us that would say, I did it in some way. This destroys that. Because human pride, the essence of sin says, no, I must play in my, my own part in some way. To this, he says, no. This is all God. So let me close with a, an, a, an amazing uh, quote here from Charles Spurgeon. I'm not really closing. Sorry. I got a little bit more to do. So I, I didn't want, you guys started bagging up your stuff. Oh, hold on. I used the wrong word there. But Charles Spurgeon, just so fantastic in describing it in this way. This is so, uh, this is so helpful. He writes, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. Who has a difficulty with that part, right? I think when you put it that way, you go, yeah, I think left to myself, left to my sinful nature, without the, without the intervention of God, him putting his spirit in me, taking me from dead to alive, making me a new creature, I would never have chosen him if he didn't do it. So Sturgeon said, I believe it because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I'd have never chosen him. And then he adds this, and I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterward. Spurgeon, I like that guy. Yeah, I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterward. He did choose you before you were born. If you've genuinely put faith in in Jesus Christ. Know that he not only chose you before you were born. He chose you before the foundation of the world. As Paul writes in Ephesians 1. That's how much he has set his love on you. So. So let me. Going back now to, to 1 Peter. Why do we go on this great discourse to understand this doctrine of election? Because that's how Peter begins. From a worldly perspective, in your various geographical locations, you're exiles. You're scattered in the world. And it might be helpful to notice here, or to, to note here at this point, that this was written in about the mid-60s AD. Nero is emperor in Rome. And I don't know if this is right, if this letter is written right before or right after uh, the great fire that happened in Rome itself that Nero blamed on the Christians that launched kind of a, a widespread persecution against Christians. Nero hated Christians. Can you imagine that? The head, the figurehead of an entire government who hates Christians. Right? No matter what we would experience in this world, no matter how bad it gets, in some ways it's great because we would get closer and closer and closer to the New Testament letters becoming really, really relevant. So imagine the figurehead of a government and the entire society just hating and despising Christians. That's the setting of this letter. And so he writes to them and he says, you exiles of the dispersion, know this, you're elect. Notice how he's putting these two ideas together. No matter what you might experience in this world as strangers and aliens and hated and despised and rejected and slandered, know this, you are elect by God the Father. Through the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. In obedience to Jesus Christ. Get those two ideas together. Elect exiles. Exiles elected. 
no matter how dark and difficult it will be in this world to be exiled. And Peter will address this quite a bit in this letter. As your exiles, remember, your elect exiles. Elect exiles. I love what we sang earlier today. Christ is mine forevermore. And what and I don't know how this keeps happening, but frequently we'll be picking a song that ends up matching the, the, the text of the passages that we'll be dealing with. But verse 3, I don't know if you caught this. Did you catch this? Mine are days here as a stranger, pilgrim on a narrow way. One with Christ, I will encounter harm and hatred for his name. But mine is armor for this battle, strong enough to last the war. And he has said he will deliver safely to the golden shore. He goes on. And mine are keys to Zion city, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Evermore indeed. Brothers and sisters, your, your exiles of the dispersion, not in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. You are exiles of the dispersion in Middleville, Door, Wayland, Byron Center, Hudsonville. You're exiles in this world. We are strangers and aliens here. We are citizens of Christ's kingdom in the heavens. But as we're exiled here, let's remember, we're elect exiles. Amen? And let's close. I invite you to stand with me as I pray. And let's sing, Christ is mine forevermore. Can you toss that back to the Let's pray together. Father God, we give you thanks and praise. That we are elect exiles. That according to your foreknowledge, from the foundation of the world, you have set your love on your people. God, we thank you that it is by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on his cross. That the shedding of his blood sprinkled and purifies us. So God, we give you thanks and praise for this amazing, gracious news. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Sing Christ is mine forevermore.
and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the electing love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. Amen.